This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Take Part TV, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Majority Report, Citizen Radio, The Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, All In With Chris Hayes, Dan Savage, and Real Time with Bill Maher. And we apologize in advance for any discomfort caused by this episode taking the controversial stance of considering poor people to also be human. Today, we're going to be talking about SNAP. What the heck is SNAP? SNAP is a supplemental nutritional assistance program. Uh, it used to be called food stamps. Gotcha. Now we call it SNAP, and SNAP offers nutrition assistance to millions of eligible, low-income Americans. The program started in the 70s, and teams of doctors proved that it dramatically reduced hunger in America. 95% of federal SNAP funding goes to food. I can see there is still some confusion out there, so let's try to separate the fact from the fiction. I thought SNAP is a program that suffers from rampant fraud and abuse. Ongoing improvements to regulate the program have actually kept fraud and abuse at a historic low, less than 2%. Can't people just get a job and get off SNAP? 40% of households receiving SNAP benefits have at least one working person. The reality is that SNAP provides a vital lifeline so that people and their families can get back on their feet while they search for work. Yeah, but don't people on SNAP waste it on alcohol and cigarettes and tobacco? The truth is... SNAP can't be used to purchase non-food items, and you're strictly prohibited from buying beer, wine, liquor, cigarettes, or tobacco. What about junk food? Well, a recent study showed that for each additional dollar that a person received in SNAP, they were more likely to purchase healthy food. But SNAP creates a dependency, and people stay on it forever. Do you know the average length of time most new participants stay on SNAP is 8 to 10 months? And receiving benefits from SNAP hardly enables anyone to live well. The average benefit equates to roughly $1.49 per meal per day, and often people don't get through the end of the month. Wow. Perspectives can change when you separate fact from fiction. To find out more and see the success stories of SNAP alumni, visit takepart.com table. Watching this Joe Scarborough, and they were having one of their, um, hey, we have to cut Medicare and Medicaid or we're going to die party on Morning Joe. Uh. Yeah, so, and by the way, I'm just not, the fact that all these Republicans are really concerned about a problem, A, I'm not buying that they want to even solve a problem ever because they never want to solve a problem, and B, they want to solve a problem that isn't coming for over a decade, okay? Doesn't pass the smell test. These are just people who want to get rid of social programs they don't like for whatever reason because it goes against their ideology even though they're successful social programs, meaning Medicare and Social Security, okay? So here's Morning Joe being super earnest about wanting to cut the most one of the most successful programs in history a lot of people in the middle the concord coalition yeah they say that medicare and medicaid is going to cause an economic collapse if we don't take care of those programs in the long haul so then when, you, when you bring that up then people say well you know what though it's a health care problem let's just fix health care and all that will magically go away well we as a country don't do good jobs fixing health care look at 93 94 look at 2009 2010 we don't 
we, we can't reform such a complex system in a way that's going to turn things around on a dime. Yes, yeah, so because we can't reform our health care system, the responsible thing to do is to cut health care for the old and elderly. Yeah. That not to try to f- figure out a way to 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 fix our healthcare system. You know, as a country, we're not great at solving complicated problems. On the bright side, we're really good at blocking solutions that come from liberals. <laughs> Every yeah, time. and since the uh, the health care reform that was passed in two thousand and ten hasn't even really Kicked gotten in. into effect yet. Right. That means it's a failure, and it didn't work. Oh, and by the way, the private sector has done such a good job keeping con- costs down. Yes. Oh, wait, that's exactly the problem. Where, but, but Scarborough thinks that's where the solution's going to come from. The solution's going to come from the private sector, even though that's where the problem comes from. And let right. me just, I'll make this point again. I, I know I've said it before. But the problem, the people go, Jimmy, but look how much money Medicare is costing us. Okay. Medicare, the problem isn't Medicare. Medicare is actually a great system that actually has lower costs than private systems. The problem is the cost of our health care in America. Why is it that we pay double for worse results than the rest of the civilized world? That doesn't even come up in these discussions. That doesn't even cross their lips. The real problem isn't Medicare. Medicare isn't driving up health care costs. Health care is driving up Medicare costs. And we need to get a hand on our health care costs like how about a single-payer system like the rest of the world which would bring down our costs maybe by half maybe by half like the rest of the world by the way it, our health insurance programs are what's driving up medical costs more than the medical industry because they have so consistently screwed with doctors that doctors consistently overbill just to get right 50 percent of what they're owed Right. So there's lots of problems. But the the only solution that Joe sees is to cut Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. The only the only way you can ever fix this is you have to cut it. You can't reform it. You can't negotiate. You can't. And by the by the way, one of the problems with (laughs) Medicare supposedly has 10 years left. Do you know it's 11. always had 11, 11 years it's left? It's always had 11. So whenever always. they do the actuarial tables, since they invented Medicare, I know this because Chris Hayes did a little research on this, and uh, which is why they put him on at 6 in the morning on MSNBC. <laughs> so he did a little, and he said that ever since they've had Medicare, they do actuarial tables, projections, to see how long Medicare is solvent. And every time they do it, Medicare is solvent for the next 11 years. So, and by the way, still today, Medicare is solvent for the next 11 years. Social Security, solvent until I've heard 2037. Now they're saying 2033. So at the, at the worst case scenario, it's solvent until 2033. And if you are telling me that a politician, Democrat or Republican, are trying to fix a problem that doesn't happen for another 15 years, meanwhile, they won't even touch the problems we have right now. Like the problem that we pay twice as much for health care than the rest of the world. Why don't we tackle that? That's happening right now. That's not a pretend problem that's going to come up in a couple decades. I wake up every night in a nightmare screaming over what's going to happen in 2033. <laughs> 2033. <laughs> we need, I love what he says, we need to take care of Medicare and Medicaid in the long haul. And by take care, he means drive grandma way out into the country and let nature do the rest. <laughs> the only time these people it's, think ahead is to, you know, kill poor people. I know, it seems odd to me that uh, it's so surprising that to solve our, our financial problems, the only solutions these guys can come up with solutions that don't ever affect them personally at all. Right. All the suffering is going to happen 
to people on the lower scale of the of the income bracket. Well, that's not, and, that's not, and it's not going to not going to hurt them. And if you say one thing about raising taxes, then that's a gigantic issue. And also, it's it's it, I guess it's just a coincidence that all of these news shows are sponsored by defense contractors, and yet they never talk about cutting the military budget when it comes to fixing these problems. Never. It's never, never that never comes up either, Frank. You're never right. It never comes up ever. And I, every, every week on the Sunday talk shows, which are all sponsored by GE and all of these defense contractors, they, they talk every week about how we need to cut Medicare and Social Security, and never once do they ever mention how uh, cutting military spending could help situation. They, they never say that ever. I think maybe that's why there's so much feeling against Hagel on the part of the Republicans because they know that he wants to cut some of the uh, defense budget. I believe And these are yes, people who are exactly... supposedly care about the deficit more than anything else and, and care about getting budget under control and um, military uh, cutting the defense spending is not even a consideration to these people. If we cut defense spending in half, would probably solve all of this stuff. We have to protect our poorhouses from foreign invaders. <laughs> yes, exactly. And by the way, Medicare, one of the most successful anti-poverty programs in the history of the world, right? So before Medicare, not a lot of people know this, the reason why, we, why do we come up with Medicare? Well, because people would retire and then they would go into poverty and they would be eating dog food. Remember those stories when you were right, a kid right. about old people eating dog food? Right. And that's what would happen. So they couldn't afford their medical care. So before Medicare, the poverty rate for elderly people, people over 65, was 33%. One in three per people over 65 lived in technical, technical poverty. Ten years after they instituted Medicare, that number was down to 11%. I wish I knew how to behave like a human. I wish I knew more than my father for me. If you were this night, you can see forever. So putting aside that attack by 60 Minutes on Social Security Disability Insurance, uh, the attack uh, also comes up in this thoughtful piece by uh, John Stossel, sort of promoting uh, his, uh, you know, his uh, Leno on the street, man on the street interviews uh, program, and he's doing it on the... Um, the wonderful bastion of ignorance that we all call Fox and Friends. Here it is, John Stossel on Fox and Friends, talking about how we've created a, a nation of takers. So is welfare creating more victims? And it's actually helping. Joining us now is the host of Stossel, John Stossel himself. So is the system not doing what it's intended to do? Well, I think government was there to keep us safe, and welfare was a new idea. It used to be done by private charities, which did it better, because they knew... That is a lie that can only be disproved by anyone who has any notion of the history of this country. Private charities have never, never, 
ever, ever been up to the task of dealing with society's poverty levels. Private charities could never, ever, ever be up to the task of dealing with all of society's um, charity uh, needs or uh, welfare needs or poverty needs. Back in the 1920s, in this city, there was literally 20,000 people sleeping on the street of the Bowery. Now, the vast majority of them were men, because some women and orphans were taken care of in the most horrible of conditions by charities. Of course, there was also a lot of women who uh, were prostitutes and were living in brothels. Uh, but it has never been the case. That is a f just an absolute abject lie. But, of course, John Stossel is on Fox and Friends, so he's not worried about that lie. Okay, go ahead. Who needed help and who needed a kick in the rear, but now we have these Pause programs. It. See that? The charities also knew. The vicar, the town vicar knew. Well, he's the town drunk. He just needs a kick in the rear, and it'll all be fine. Maybe we just push him out into the uh, the outskirts of town, and or hope, maybe it's like Charles do. Dickens, and the kid just needs to join a pickpocket gang and stop asking for more oatmeal. It's just like grow up and have a little rugged Please, individualism. Please, sir, may I have some more? Sorry, Oliver, you've had too much. Continue. You just need a kick in the arse. But you can see it with the war on poverty, how it created dependency. Let I me mean, look at this. Thing. All right. They can proudly say, Linda Johnson, we wage war on poverty, we create welfare. Poverty goes down for the next six years. But look at before it started. Americans were lifting themselves out of poverty. Welfare continued that, and then progress stopped. and has gone up and down since. Yeah. Okay, now pause it. So there was a dip in poverty, if you can imagine, during the greatest economic expansion our country has ever seen. And then we instituted the war on poverty, and poverty continued to fall. But then we hit the 70s. Does anybody remember anything about the 70s? What is it about the 70s? Oh, I remember stagflation. I remember the economy went into the, to the, to the tank. And then poverty starts to rise, sort of weirdly, around 1983. When we start to see the destruction of unions, when we start to see the redistribution of wealth upwards, when we start to see the diminishment of and the increase of income inequality, and ever since, it's almost as if it attracts like the economy. But of course, no one's going to question that, that graph on Fox and Friends because they don't have the capacity to. People to be dependent. And wouldn't you say that, uh, given the fact, when you looked at, at the last presidential election, you know, there were a number of people on the right who said, look, everybody's going to vote for Barack Obama because he's given away so much free stuff. Maybe, and we all get free stuff. I mean, I'm getting Medicare now. That feels like free stuff. Way to go. We you earned it, though. I... Wow. Surprise, surprise. I'm getting free stuff. But the problem is the other people who are getting free stuff. We can all agree that I earned my Medicare, 
even though that we know Medicare pays out benefits that are actually higher than uh, your average person puts in. Or at least if you average it out amongst everybody who puts it in, not everybody makes it to 65. That's okay. But let's talk about those other people because we know they're not like me. Hmm. We went to one jobs office where we found all kinds of entry-level jobs just outside. Inside, they said, oh, no jobs around. And one of the welfare workers actually admitted that, yeah, we probably encourage people not to look for work. And do you think you and Human Resources encourage people to be dependent? Yes, we do. So what, what should be done about that? I don't really know. I don't really know. <laughs> so I guess stop giving away the money and then they'll get a job. <laughs> and you work for the government. That's right. Well, that's, if, if that's you're refreshing. In, I know. If, if yeah, you're in 35 no. states. Okay, hold on. Uh, let's let's just go back just a moment here for a second, a couple of seconds. First off, we don't know how that uh, that exchange was edited. Uh, we don't know any context. It's a great anecdote. We don't know if, as I think it's Elizabeth Hasselbeck will bring up in a moment, um, well, maybe it's possible that people can't make a living wage and they can't feed their kids. There is always going to be a dynamic. There's always going to be a price point, folks where if I work at a minimum wage job with a family of four, I will not be able to put food on their table. I can get slightly more from a welfare program, but if I work at all, I'm not eligible for that welfare program. That is always going to be a dilemma. The percentage of people who fall in that, uh, um, uh, that, that zone is incredibly small and if you want to fix it then there are ways to create a tiered system but there's no interest in doing that because then you would lose this anecdote well that's, if, if that's you're refreshing in, I know if, if you're in 35 states though the actual the minimum wage there is less than what you can make being on welfare so the motivation to go get a job is almost non-existent in 35 states Often, and disability ranks going up. So what's weird about that? Better medicine, less manual labor, and more Americans are disabled. Older people, more. It, it used to be a stigma to, to take a handout, and right. now you start to feel like you're a sucker if you don't because your neighbor is getting it. So, you know, uh, my wife and I were talking about this. Once upon a time, there was some shame to it. You know, occasionally, on some occasions, families would fall to, this, to the stage where they would have to get some sort of government assistance. And but now, it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. Hey, it's out there. Let's take it. And I was at fault. I joined the chorus that said, it's not right. These people who, through no fault of their own, need help, and we're shaming them? That's what? terrible. But it's grown from that to this entitlement. And people who need it should get it, but it's the other people that you've got to worry about. And this is what you're going to be talking about tonight on your show, right? Yeah, I wonder if uh, tonight on his show, John Stossel will make it really clear, who are the other people? Hmm, I wonder. Hell is other people. To hell is other people.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Okay, so all these news programs uh, suddenly care about the poor because it's an anniversary of some bullshit. Uh, it's the anniversary of the Lyndon 50th Johnson's anniversary the of the war, war on poverty, um, which Lyndon Johnson proposed a bunch of really good social which, programs. Which, by the way, how have. fucking weird is it to see an old clip of a president saying, "We are declaring war on poverty"? And like what? And it's not like on Iran, yeah, on Iraq. We're declaring war, duck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, on poverty. Yeah. yeah, and it's in black and white. Which yeah. usually means, like, you're racist. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so a lot of good social programs got uh, their start with Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, right? right? So what's so fascinating is – so you look at – and again, I hate to talk about, like, Republicans in Congress because Democrats as well and Democrats are also pieces of shit and Clinton's welfare reform and Clinton's hor- – whatever. So anyway – the war on poverty would not have passed all those programs without Republicans. Food stamps was not a partisan issue until recently. Like Bob Dole really supported food stamps. And the fact that things have gotten so polarized and so partisan that we are having like filibusters mm. over health care that we're right. I mean. And, I, and there's so a couple things. The right is framing the war on poverty as a failure because they're doing some tricky math. Mm-hmm. And if you look at like, yeah, if you look at income over that 50 year period, of course, people are not better off because we have stagnant wages. Right. Um, but what they're not counting is the support people get through like food stamp programs. Mm-hmm. If you count that we're much better off than we were 50 years ago because we have a social safety net now. Right. Uh, you know, for the most part, people aren't starving in the street. Uh, that's not to say there, there's no example of that, but we do have this food stamp program. We have like, you know, um, Medicare, Medicaid, um, assisted living, stuff like that. Um, affordable housing. Um, but the second thing is, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Back in the day, conservatives supported stuff like food stamps because, hey, they have poor constituents, too. Right. Um, and right. that it's really popular to say, like, I'm not going to let you starve. Yeah. Yay. And now, but, that, now that electric fences have been built and they don't have to see the poor. Yeah. But unfortunately, now the Southern strategy is to use social welfare programs as code. Right. Yeah. So when you say stuff like food stamps, black um, people, black people uh, mooches, yeah. immigrants. So now the Republicans can't even g- go down that avenue because then it looks like because that they've used that coding for so long that they're now empathizing with the very people they villainize. I'm going to do my Republican speech. Ready? We need to keep these food stamps off of our lawn. It has been too long that welfare has been walking beside me on the sidewalk and I have had to cross the street because I am afraid of welfare. 
thought you were going to go with me. Or throw oh, wait, a, wait, wait, hold on. Throw a laugh my way. No, don't slow clap. I want to keep doing the bit. Oh. Medicaid is coming for your white women. <laughs> Yeah, but that's not that much of an exaggeration, you know, where it's like, so they can't even support these programs where remember during the healthcare debates, there were these town hall meetings and like the poor Democrats who were like, listen, you idiots, um, how many of you are on Medicare and all the hands would go up? It's like, how many of you like government assistance and all the hands would go down? And it's like, what the fuck do you think Medicare is? Um, but that's a huge part of the problem, right? Like these poor usually white, no. uh, elderly people, right. do really rely on the government, but at the same time have been conditioned to hate the government. Oh God, that was another thing. And anybody who they perceive as mooching off the government, which is poor minorities. Right. Hey, folks, here's a story about Minnie the Moocha. She was a low-down huge goocha. She was the roughest, toughest frail. But Minnie had a heart as big as a whale. Honey, 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 honey. The Republicans, they're going to go, you know, next mo- Monday is Martin Luther King Day. And the Republicans intend to go on a, uh, or the, well, the all of Congress. They're basically going to take the week off. Hey, it's a holiday. Let's take the week off. This is how Congress works. And so yesterday, Harry Reid said, we'd like to have a vote on a three-month extension of unemployment benefits and on a one-year extension of unemployment benefits. And, in fact, you know, Republicans, Harry Reid even allowed, uh, even offered to allow votes on five amendments from each party in exchange for a simple majority vote on the extension. But the Republicans said, no, we're going to filibuster it anyway. So... You know, immediately 1.9 million people who since the 28th of December have been cut off from their unemployment benefits and we're now a few, you know, we're now what, three weeks down the road from there. So it's gone from 1.4 to 1.7 to 1.9. But this is interesting. Ross Ibrey at the uh, Economic Policy Institute, he says almost every story about the Republican filibuster mentions 1.3 million they missed the bigger stories not just those who are receiving checks in the program expired but also the millions of people who are looking for work but haven't yet reached 26 weeks millions more are going to lose jobs and then lose jobs in the next few months and exhaust their 26 weeks of unemployment benefits later in the year and when they reach 26 weeks there'll be an estimated 70,000 new long-term jobless workers every week so basically what they're saying is that this filibuster by the Republicans is going to cut off long-term unemployment benefits, assuming that it stands for the rest of the year. That we are now going to live in this Rand Paul universe of 26 weeks, period, good luck. And some states, even North Carolina, just chopped it down to 20 weeks. But that we're going to live in this universe of 26 weeks, that that's going to hit 
5 million people, 4.9 specifically million people. And the Republican story about this, this is, this is fascinating. The Republican story about this, and Rand Paul said this uh, so eloquently. We used to have a clip of it. I don't know if we still have that clip. But uh, Rand Paul basically made the Republican case, and that is that after 26 weeks, if you continue paying people unemployment benefits, what you're doing is you're giving them an incentive to sit on the couch and eat bonbons. You're doing them a disservice. In fact, here he is. I, I do support unemployment benefits for the 26 weeks that they're paid for. If you extend it beyond that, you do a disservice to these workers. There was a study that came out a few months ago, and it said if you have a worker that's been unemployed yeah, well, for four weeks. I'm going to cut him off right there because, you know, uh, the news went back and said, would you please give us a copy of that study? And his office never did. So there is no study. And the fact of the matter is that the studies that have been done find that people who are on unemployment benefits are more likely to find jobs than people whose unemployment benefits have run out. Why is that? Because they still have at least enough money to pay for gas to go knock on the door of an employer. They have enough money to have their suit dry cleaned and, and show up for a job interview. They have enough money to be able to, to, to take bus fare down to, you know, it's, it's like you cut off their unemployment benefits they don't have time to look for a job. They're looking for a place to live. They're trying to arrange for a homeless shelter. They're calling all their relatives to take their furniture. That's what's happening to 5 million of our fellow Americans because the Republicans are on this relentless war against the American middle class. And Democrats said, okay, you want this paid for? Fine. Let's close with just one small loophole, like the loophole that Apple uses to keep uh, billions and billions of dollars overseas and never have to pay taxes on it. Let's just close one small loophole. They didn't even propose that specific one. They just said, you know, there's lots of corporate loopholes. Let's close one and use that money to pay for unemployment. Oh, no, said the Republicans. You're not going to close any corporate loopholes. Well, how about loopholes for rich people? Let's change capital gains tax, for example. Oh, no, you're not going to close loopholes on rich people. Well, what do you want to do then, say the Democrats? The Republicans say, well, the way that we'll pay for this extension of unemployment benefits is by cutting back on food stamps. Right. Because people will look for jobs more aggressively when they're hungry and broke and out of work. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
I'm joined once again by Richard Wolf. He is Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts, also a visiting professor at the New School University in New York City. Professor, professor Wolf, last time you were on, we talked about whether terms like capitalist and socialist were relevant when applied broadly to American economic policy. And to, to kind of shorten that interview into one sentence, we determined they weren't particularly relevant in having meaningful discussions about modern economics in the U.S. We recently talked about an article which outlined that Sweden, in spite of the maybe superficial assumption that it is socialistic or communistic in terms of the amount of social programs that are provided, business regulation, etc., has still managed to have more billionaires per capita than the U.S. Now, I made clear when I talked about that, that in my mind, billionaires per capita are not the barometer by which an economy should be judged. But putting that aside, very often we hear from the American right that economies like Sweden simply do not allow for such accumulation of wealth, particularly with social programs like health care for all. Let's start there. Is there anything specific about social programs that prevents vast wealth from accumulating? Basically, no, because the question is really what the connection might be between providing a social safety net or social welfare on the one hand, and individual wealth. It is possible that a society could decide that the way to pay for social welfare and so on is to tax people who are very wealthy uh, and make that the source of the money needed to provide a safety net. In that situation, and by the way, no major society has done that, but it's possible to do it in that way and use um, the money from the wealthy. You know, the person who came closest to that in modern history uh, may surprise you uh, was Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1943 and 1944 when he proposed in his State of the Union message and sent to Congress uh, an income tax rate of the highest at the highest level for the richest Americans of 100 percent. What that meant was in those years, every dollar over $25,000, which would be roughly $375,000 today, but anyone who earned over $25,000, President Roosevelt said, should be taxed at 100 percent. In other words, they couldn't earn more than 25000 no matter what their technical salary or uh, payments might have been. Uh, and that was a very serious proposition of a president. Uh, the Republicans went predictably ballistic when it was delivered to the Congress. But when all the hoopla and posturing was over, the Republicans and Democrats agreed to a top income tax bracket in the United States in those years of 94%. Right. So that would be a way of taxing the rich to provide, among other things, social welfare. But most societies haven't done that. They have provided social welfare by taxing all the different parts of society, and that has enabled uh, people to become millionaires and billionaires in Sweden, for that matter today, in China, in France, in Germany, and so on. 
there's kind of another layer to this discussion about social programs and the effect on the economy, which is we can look at kind of the, the more micro level, which is individually food stamp dollars are highly stimulative relative to a tax cut for the rich. That, that's one area that we've talked about a lot. But I'm curious whether you think there's another level, which is if you have strong social programs, like in Sweden, for example, there are very strong social programs. If you are simply poor, not only do you have access to health care, but you actually have a sort of subsidy or stipend. The idea is that nobody be too, too low on the socioeconomic ladder, so to speak. Does that, at the macro level, actually help the large or medium businesses because the entire population has slightly more means with which to partake in their product or service. Is that, can we look at that approach? Yes, I think you should even take it further. <clears throat> Excuse me. If a firm uh, hires people who have a national health service, that firm does not have to do the immense record-keeping, uh, premium-paying, uh, personnel hiring to manage the medical benefits, as we call them here, uh, for these individuals, because the government basically does that. And if they use a single-payer type of system, the savings are astronomical. Uh, we spend in this society uh, roughly 18% of our GDP on medical care. No other society comes anywhere near that. Every other advanced industrial society pays half or less of that and gets better medical outcomes than we have here in the United States. So it is a perfect example of how providing quality uh, care to the people, the mass of the people, is directly beneficial to businesses, even separate from the fact that they might have more money uh, to spend uh, on the products of those goods. In order to believe in the American system, which tends to uh, cast dispersions on government intervention, you have to believe something remarkable, which is that every other advanced industrial country, every European country, our neighbors to the north, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and many, many countries in, in Asia, Africa, and Latin America have all opted for a social safety net unlike the United States. Now, either all of them are mistaken and all of them are misguided <laughs> and all of them have had some strange results or else we're the strange ones, we're the outlying observation, and I think the odds are and the logic is more towards the latter than the former. Oftentimes when I have individual conversations like this with some of the right-wingers on this program, we'll start with, for example, okay, let's look at how well the stock market has done under President Obama. Often something they present as an indicator of how well the economy is doing. However, when I mention that, all of a sudden that's not the right barometer. When we look at millionaires and billionaires, all of a sudden that becomes not the right barometer when talking about Sweden. When we talk about the middle class, all of a sudden all of the countries you mentioned are not the right barometer. This seems to me kind of like an obvious ad hoc moving of the goalposts, so to speak, that, that, that quite frankly doesn't really make any sense. Uh, where do you think that this, this moving of the goalposts comes from? I think this moving of the goalpost or switching the barometer is a kind of um, defensiveness uh, of those who want to point to an American capitalism uh, with the kind of pride and confidence they once had 
but is now fast eluding them. I mean, we have to face a reality which they're confronted with. This capitalism crashed in December of 2007, uh, and it hasn't recovered in any way except for the super-rich in the last six years. The vast majority of Americans are confronted every day with the rising debts they have to incur to get their kids through college, with the prospects of poor jobs and poor incomes for most of the people that graduate these days, for insecure jobs, for jobs with fewer, if any, benefits, for a government that is toying with cutting back on the social security at the same time that the private sector job situation is grim. Uh, to defend capitalism has become much, much harder. Senator Marco Rubio planning a big speech on the war on poverty. After 50 years, isn't it time to declare big government's war on poverty a failure? You have Paul Ryan also talking about poverty as an issue. We got the 50th anniversary of the war on poverty coming up next year. We don't have much to show for it. So it does appear that some thought leaders in the Republican Party think this is an issue worth tackling. Exactly, but there's a difference between raising the minimum wage and tackling poverty. You may be wondering, what exactly is the Republican poverty agenda? And what have Republicans done concretely to advance it? Most recently, Republicans cut off long-term unemployment benefits for 1.3 million people three days after Christmas by refusing to include an extension in the budget agreement hashed out before the holiday. Victory! I do support unemployment benefits for the 26 weeks that they're paid for. If you extend it beyond that, you do a disservice to these workers. But that's just the latest victory. In fact, Republicans have been hard at work on their poverty agenda over the entire last year. In June, House Republicans actually voted down a farm bill because it didn't include enough cuts to the food stamp program. The U.S. House today rejected a five-year, half-trillion-dollar farm bill. The bill would have cut food stamps by $2 billion a year, but that was too much for many Democrats and not enough for a number of Republicans. Doubling down on their poverty agenda, the House passed a bill in September that cut the program by almost $40 billion over the next 10 years. The bill would kick almost 4 million people off the program in the first year alone. Now come early reports that a compromise bill between the House and Senate could include eight to nine billion dollars in food stamp cuts. Another hard-fought Republican victory for their poverty agenda. The Bible also says the, the poor will always be with us. And it also says if you don't work, you don't eat. Of course, Republicans' biggest victory for their agenda came not from Washington, but from Republican governors across the country who refused to participate in the Medicaid expansion. Medicaid uh, is a failed program. Uh, to expand this program is not unlike uh, adding a thousand people to the Titanic. In their efforts to block the Medicaid expansion, Republicans have been remarkably successful. 23 states, almost all with Republicans. 
Republican governors are refusing to expand the program, denying health insurance to almost 5 million people who desperately need it. People who say the Republican Party doesn't have a poverty agenda are wrong. They have a very clear, concrete, three-pronged agenda to deny people in desperate straits the help they need. To take away unemployment insurance for people looking for work. To take food out of the mouths of people who are hungry. And to deny poor and sick people health care. That is the Republican Party's poverty agenda. Making more people poor. You know, first of all, most Americans do not have paid vacations anymore. Forget health care through your employer. Forget pensions, which have all been destroyed in this country. Uh, many Mar- Americans never have any time off at all. Uh, I-, I lucked into a stupid gig where I can af- afford to go on vacations every once in a while, even afford to go to Europe every once in a while. And for that, I am eternally grateful. Uh, you know, and it-, it was an accident that I met somebody starting a newspaper, and I said, oh, you should have an advice column. And he asked me to write it, and it took off. And now this is my job, and it's really crazy. Otherwise, I would be a waiter with no paid vacation, no health insurance, uh, and no pension. Uh, but I lucked into this gig, right? And I'm grateful. And, and just that always weighs on me. You know, I'm going to Europe. I'm going on vacation. I'm getting three weeks of vacation because I'm fancy, you know, and my sister doesn't get that the kind of vacation. Most Americans don't get that those kinds of vacations, and we're screwed that way. You know, by law, most Europeans get four to six weeks off every year, and it makes them better, more rested, more productive, and most Americans feel like they've won the lottery when they land a job where they get two weeks of paid vacation every year. We're fucked, right, on that. And, and and here's the other thing that we're fucked on and most Americans don't seem to realize it. We were in Germany. Uh, we were hanging out with a friend for a week, came to came to see us. Um, and he's uh, currently, he just took time off his job to, to finish his PhD, which is why I was able to just dink on over to Berlin and hang out with us. And I began to talk to him about, you know, oh, you're taking time off your job for your PhD. And I stupidly, as an American, said, oh, did you have to take out a loan? student loans to, to, to pay for this while you, you know, finish your PhD to pay your tuition and, you know, your living expenses and everything. And he looked at me like I was crazy and he said, no, no, um, I, I took a leave of absence from my job and the government is paying me 60% of my salary while I finish my PhD. Uh, uh, what? No student loans? And Americans are supposed to, just like my, you know, friends who have, get a job with two weeks paid vacation feel like they've won the lottery. Americans are supposed to be very grateful. We won the lottery. You got a student loan and the interest rate isn't crushing. But Americans are currently struggling under trillions of dollars of debt, student loan debt. People with college degrees, master's degrees, PhDs, they will never get out from under their debt. And in Europe, this guy, the government, because it recognizes that a highly educated population is going to be the benefit of the economy, they're paying our friend 60% of his salary to take time off his job and finish his PhD. And we think it's a victory if we can get the government here 
to pass a law that just brings the interest rate down a couple of points on our student loans. We are so fucked. Healthcare, vacation time, labor unions, student loans. In every way, we are fucked. And we're told, oh, you know, we can't do it like Europe. You want to end up like Greece? We're in Germany, which is the strongest and most vibrant economy in Europe, which has a really strong social safety program, which has really great socialized medicine. And they got the Reichstag, and the Reichstag's pretty fucked up. They need to work on that. But a lot of everything else that they're doing is really smart. And I think that it would just be terrific if more Americans would look to what they're doing in Europe and how the culture and the society and the uh, the system is set up in Europe more to the benefit of all, with the rich paying their fair share of taxes, with the government not spending so fucking much money on defense, which leaves money for things like helping people get their educations and providing health care for all and building decent public transportation. Anyway, I was on vacation and I met somebody and found something else out about how fucked we are here that we don't even realize. I didn't even realize. It never occurred to me that a government would pay you to finish your dissertation as opposed to lend you money and then demand it back and garnish your wages and crush you under debt for the rest of your life and consider and call that helping you get your education. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tuition-free public college education. It will come as no surprise to listeners of this show that college diplomas are typically accompanied by significant debt. According to Truthout, the average graduate now walks with $29,400 in student loans, a burden they must repay no matter their field of study, career success, or starting salary. Efforts from progressive legislators like Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York have stalled in Congress. Her Federal Student Loan Refinancing Act would have brought down interest rates on the estimated $1.2 trillion in student loan debt to a fixed 4%, providing significant relief to current debt holders. Unfortunately, even if Gillibrand and her allies in Congress are able to breathe new life into such a bill, that still leaves 40 million Americans with a significant and often financially detrimental amount of debt. Student loan debt isn't subject to discharge through bankruptcy. Now think about that. Corporations can escape fines, pension obligations, and shoddy business deals by filing bankruptcy. But if an American graduates from college into an awful job market and doesn't make it fast enough to get a handle on their student loans, they're stuck with them forever. And should they default, their entire financial future can be ruined before their 30th birthday. It's time public higher education was free. Campaign for America's Future and Credo Action have teamed up to push this simple notion most other developed countries have already implemented. The idea that we all benefit from an educated populace isn't revolutionary to most progressives. What's new in this petition drive campaign is a newsflash for conservatives. It would cost less for the government to make all public universities tuition-free than what is already spent on grants. 
This should be a no-brainer for everyone. Visit credomobilize.com or click the link in the segment notes to join the almost 50,000 people who are demanding that the $23 billion in the Pell Grant program in last week's omnibus spending bill currently on President Obama's desk doesn't go far enough. The country can save money and the next generation of graduates can enter the workforce without the suffocating burden of $20,000-plus in debt. They'll be free to start their own business, take risks, and, as is supposedly all important to the GOP, spend money in our economy rather than making interest-only payments on debt they can't escape. If the GOP is going to be intransigent this legislative cycle, let's get to work demanding common-sense proposals they will find it impossible to shrug off come November. By vocally backing programs conservatives can't dismiss out of hand, the electorate can push them to action. So sign and then spread the word through your networks. And as always, feel free to call, tweet, or email your reps through contactingthecongress.org to tell them you support tuition-free public education and you expect them to do the same. from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action It's okay if you don't want to feed the hungry or heal the sick or house the homeless. Just don't say you're doing it for their own good. Don't say you'd like to help people, but your hands are tied because if you did, it would cause a culture of dependency or go against the Bible or, worst of all, rob them of their freedom to be sick and hungry. Just... Just admit you're selfish, and based on how little your beliefs mirror the actual teachings of Jesus, you might as well claim to worship despicable me. (laughs) Now, now I bring this up because last week new food stamp cuts went into effect, and Congressman Steve Fincher, a Republican from Dogpatch, justified the cuts by quoting the Bible. The one who does not work shall not eat. And it reminded me that I keep seeing stories in the news about Christians stiffing servers in restaurants, like the Applebee's waitress in Missouri who got this note from a church pastor written on the check. It said, I give God 10%. Why do you get 18? Prompting the question, who ordered the piping hot asshole? (laughs) This is what Jesus would do? I doubt it. I think what Jesus would do is move the hell out of that part of Missouri. And if you're a waiter or a waitress in the Bible Belt, you may very well have seen one of these. It's a phony $10 bill that Christians sometimes leave on the table in lieu of an actual tip. It looks like a 10, so you get the benefit of giving poor people hope and then crushing it. (laughs) But on the back it says, some things are better than money, like your eternal salvation that was bought and paid for by Jesus going to the cross. Yeah, well, Jesus didn't have to put gas in the donkey. I I don't know what... (laughs) I I don't know what the snake handlers have against the food handlers or when restaurant receipts became the new bully pulpit, but 
There was another story recently, this one from Kansas, where instead of a tip, a Christian family left their server, who they knew was gay, this note. Thank you for your service. It was excellent. That being said, we cannot in good conscience tip you, for your homosexual lifestyle is an affront to God. Queers do not share in the wealth of God, and you will not share in ours. Note they repeat the phrase, not share, to really drive home that they've absorbed the message of Jesus. Okay. First off, just because you're eating out doesn't give you the right to tell your server who they should be eating out. Beyond that, someone needs to tell these people that not tipping a gay waiter will not make him want to put his penis in a woman. It'll make him want to put his penis in your pasta primavera. <laughs> now, I am sure there are millions of Christians who try to actually follow Jesus, but you got to admit, conservatives always seem to have a reason why they would love to give, but they just can't. We would love to help the unemployed, but it would discourage working. I, I believe in charity, just not for people who need it. Of course, we'd like it if everyone could see a doctor. We're not monsters, but if the government does it, it will destroy our way of life. Plus, the website is glitchy, which leads to Stalinism. <laughs> oh, sure, we'd like to help people who are starving, but what if they use the strength from not starving to take drugs? <laughs> yes, there's always a good moral Christian reason to tell everyone you meet to fuck off and die. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But if you're a waiter and you ever get one of those fake $10 bills, do me a favor and next time you're in church, drop it in the collection basket. What's up, Jay? This is Jamie from Cincinnati. That was another great show today about the TPP. You know, I'm consuming this sort of information all the time, whether it be, you know, in podcast forum or periodicals or whatnot. You know, it's constantly coming in and, you know, very rarely, if at all, does something make, you know, do I actually feel emotional about, you know, actually moved. And in this case, not, 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 not in a great way. I don't, I don't know. It's just, I sort of, you know, I never made any decisions about these issues. It's just sort of how I've, I never had to decide whether I was a liberal or conservative on issues. So, you know, consuming all of this, this you know, lefty politics is not, uh, I, I like the information, but it doesn't make me emotional. This was just absolutely disturbing. It's just just too far afield and it's for one you know for once it's it's something that you know and i think it was just by the way that you put it together for once i feel like i you know i need to, to do something about it I, I never it's amazing actually now that i'm saying that the fact that that's never occurred to me before but it hasn't anyway man i, I love your show have a good night Hey Jay, this is Chrissy from Kansas, long time no call. 
I've been chewing on some thoughts about racism inspired by your conversation with my girl, Elka. Hi, Jay, this is Elka in uh, Fort Wayne. You know, I guess you're right that it's, a, a, you know, sort of a battle that has been lost in terms of, of that word and how it has changed. And it's not surprising that that battle has been lost because, you know, dominant culture is always going to win those kind of battles, unfortunately. And I think you're both wrong with regards to the fight being lost. So the first thing that I wanted to address is the word racism and the supposition that because people use the word a certain way, that must mean that that's what the word means. To address this, I have a question, and that is, what does the word feminism mean? Well, if you ask me, feminism is the movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation, and oppression. If you ask Elizabeth Hasselbeck, who recently... Uh, had an interview where she asked whether or not feminism was a threat to national security, I think she would have a different definition. So who's right? Well, to answer the question, you have to consider who benefits from the way that a word is defined. Which brings me to my second point, which is about what racism actually means and why it means that, regardless of popular usage. And for that, I'm going to read you a clip from a blog post uh, titled Why Black People Can't Be Black by Andrew Austin. Um, okay. For the argument that claims that everyone can be racist to be valid, two things have to be true. One, all racialized groups must exist in a state of equality. And two, racism must be reduced to A, race prejudice, and or B, purposeful action, the goal of which is the oppression of a racialized group. Concerning one, it's an empirical fact that racial groups exist in a state of inequality. This is easy to show. Concerning two, racism is more than prejudice and purposeful action based on race. The reduction of racism to these things is the racist's definition of racism. Using such a definition, it becomes impossible to fight racism itself because the very act of fighting racism becomes interpreted as racist. In order to end racism, we must take away white privilege. With the racist definition of racism in play, the racial consciousness and purposeful action based on race necessary to carry out the restructuring will be judged racist. Thus, anti-racism becomes racism, an obvious self-sealing fallacy. The purpose of the argument, however fallacious, is to perpetuate an unjust state of affairs. In other words, don't do anything to end racism lest you become racist. But in reality, Failing to end racism is racist. The way out of the paradox is to develop an understanding of power. Fortunately, we have the social, scientific, and anti-racist understanding of racism to help us with this. Racism equals discrimination plus power plus oppressive group effects. This means that racism concerns institutional and, more broadly, structural powers and outcomes that systemically benefit one group to the disadvantage of another or other groups. So you know the dictionary now defines literally to mean both literally and figuratively. That doesn't mean that the word literally literally means not literal. It means that sometimes common usage is weird and should be corrected. Sorry this got long. I look forward to hearing the rest of the discussion. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So first of all, the Polar Bear Plunge was this weekend. I reached my goal. I appreciate everyone who donated. Uh, Obviously, I survived. Uh, Thanks for your concern. And, uh, And I just posted a members-only bonus show about the Polar Bear Plunge in which I tell sort of the whole story of the day beginning to end. Uh, Something special happened at the plunge this year that had not happened in any of the ones that I had uh, done before. Uh, So you can find out what that was in the members-only show. And then there was a moment during the plunge that made me feel like a 13-year-old girl. And to find out what that was, you would also have to be a member and check out the members-only bonus show. If you're not a, a member... I, I question your priorities, but you can rectify that. Go to the members tab at bestoftheleft.com. And if you are a member and you're not listening to the bonus content, then I just don't know what you're doing with your life. Secondly, we are up for a shorty award. And what this means, this is an award for our social media work, which means I had literally nothing to do with it. Katie Klebusik, who works and, and does all of the activism segments for the show, also runs the social media. I'll chime in there every once in a while, but it is – I just – I don't have the capacity to, to do that, and she is much better at it than I am anyways. And so we have been uh, nominated by which I mean she has been nominated for a Shorty Award. There is a link up at bestofleft.com. You can click through and uh, – you know. I don't know what it is. You nominate us or you uh, vote for us because we're already nominated. Anyways, it, it, it'll become crystal clear to you if you uh, follow that link on our website. Uh, voting or nominating is going on right now for the next couple of weeks. You can probably do it more than once. I really should have looked up the rules for this uh, before I started talking. But it, like I said, it, it'll all become clear. Just check out the website. Go to the link. You can't miss it. Now, on today's show, Sam Cedar uh, talked for just a, a moment about systems. Uh, let me play this for you and ref- refresh your memory. There is always going to be a dynamic. There's always going to be a price point, folks, where if I work at a minimum wage job with a family of four, I will not be able to put food on their table. I can get slightly more from a welfare program, but if I work at all, I'm not eligible for that welfare program. Now, I highlight this because this exact topic, this issue of systems and the inevitabilities of the outcomes of systems, these edge cases, as Sam was just highlighting, um, this is exactly what I was talking about in a members-only bonus show recently, uh, just about a week ago, and I was basically refuting the argument that there is any sort of moral failing as it relates to trying to maximize your own benefit given a set of rules that you are being made to abide by. And and so, you know, I, I talked at length about that. Again, members, bonus content, go get it. Uh, in, in that same episode, I, I talked about the concept of shifting baselines, which means, you know, depending on essentially when you're born, your interpretation of the world is different. And uh, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But, you know, when it relates to systems and, you know, rules in the government, you know, like if you were born in the Eisenhower era and, taxes were at 90% for the highest earners, well, then 35% might not sound like socialism quite as much as if you were born uh, you know, during the Reagan years or something. So anyways, the, the last thing I want to touch on is uh, Chrissy's 
call about uh, the definition of racism. And in her call, she, she sort of makes her point by asking the definition of feminism because definitely people have different interpretations of the definition of feminism. So she's arguing that there's such a thing as common usage and correct usage and that you know when common usage falls out of sync with correct usage, then it needs to be corrected and brought back into line. Um, but I would sort of start making my point by asking the definition of the word queer. And rather than asking two different people today the definition of the word queer, I would ask someone from 50 years ago and then someone else from today. And I would say that probably bigots and non-bigots alike 50 years ago would have agreed that queer is a derogatory term used mainly to refer to gay men. Whereas today, queer is actually one of the letters that represents the LGBTQ community. And so they have succeeded in turning it from a pejorative to a positive term, making my point that language changes and in, you know, common usage and correct usage. And then sort of similarly, you know, a dollar bill is not literally the value of a dollar. It's a piece of paper. Value is what we collectively have agreed to bestow on a dollar bill just as we have collectively agreed to grant definitions to words. So similar to language, there used to not exist a unified United States dollar. So each bank could actually print their own currency, which would be traded and constantly converted against goods and services and hundreds of other currencies. And it was a mess. And now, you know, everyone's free to go about using their own definitions of words if they want. But if their definition is not in line with what dominant society has decided, then it's going to be difficult to communicate in a similar way that it'd be difficult to make a purchase at a store with a paper dollar that wasn't issued by the Federal Reserve, even if you could make a really solid argument that that bill was a genuine currency back before the Civil War. And so the point of this, and I want to be really, really clear, that the point of all this is not to say that the definition of racism has officially changed, so just get over it, because it hasn't. The point of what I'm saying is that there is no such thing as an official definition. Words are what we believe them to be, and their definitions change far more often than we realize, because those changes usually happen really slowly. So sometimes groups of organized people can influence the meaning of a word, the, well, the, the way the LGBTQ movement did with the word queer, but more often than not, when you find yourself on the minority end of a definitional debate, you end up only hurting yourself and you put yourself at a rhetorical disadvantage when you're trying to make your arguments in a language, essentially, that other people don't understand. And it's another example of shifting baseline syndrome. So I'm not saying that the definition of racism has changed because I don't think that's really a thing <laughs> the way I understand it. But what I am saying is that dominant culture's understanding of the definition of racism has changed. And I think that's what Elka was essentially agreeing with in the end. And I even think that Chrissy would agree with that. The difference is that Chrissy thinks there is such a thing as correct usage that is immutable. And what I'm saying is that there is a tipping point at which common usage becomes correct usage through sheer force of domination because language is not something that was you know given down to us carved in stone from above it's something that's collectively developed over time and is constantly changing and shifting and so the definitions of words only are what they are because we collectively agree that they are that way in the same way that we collectively agree that a green piece of paper has the value of a dollar. 
So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft, and uh, voting for us for the Shorty Awards. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on our award-nominated Facebook and Twitter pages. And for details on the show itself, including links to the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained